Lord Jesus, uh, you have not left us without answers. You've not left us to wonder who you are or what you desire from us. God, you have been so clear in your desire that we would love and serve you. And, and I pray this morning, Lord, that, that, that those words, your greatest commandment, would permeate our souls, that we would have a, a better glimpse of you and a better understanding of what you desire from us. Lord, move us, motivate in us by your Spirit to be lovers of God and, and lovers of people. I pray, Lord, that you would not let me get in the way of your word, but that you would be the one speaking through me and that I would be clear and accurate and and just helpful, Lord, uh, for your people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here in Mark 12, uh, we find ourselves in the midst of Passion Week. Uh, A couple of days prior, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem amidst uh, the palm branches and the praises being given to him. And his very first day in Jerusalem, uh, the next day he comes and he goes into the temple. He throws out the money changers, uh, uh, destroys the lucrative business that the leadership had been trying to do. And and he spends each day there in the temple and uh, basically attacking, openly exposing the hypocrisy of the Jewish leadership there, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, scribes and the lawyers. And Jesus also uh, spoke a parable about them. He compared compared them to uh, these hired hands who took over a vineyard and then killed the vineyard owner so that they could inherit that vineyard. So he wasn't making friends among these guys. In fact, they wanted nothing less than to take him out. If not kill him, at least silence him. They wanted to discredit him in front of the people so that they could flip the crowds against him. So Jesus was in a bout with them, and they had gotten together one day, probably on a Tuesday or Wednesday of that week, and were trying to come up with a way to to trip up Jesus so that he would either say something wrong or say something controversial so the crowds would turn against him so they would have their opportunity to take him out. So they came up with a few questions. One was regarding taxes, always a volatile topic. They thought they could get him with that one, but he responds with a a very amazing and wise answer. And then the Sadducees come along and try to trip him up regarding a question about the resurrection. That was a controversial topic. But in the two responses that Jesus gives, he not only uh, doesn't incite the crowd against him, he further attracts them to him as they're amazed at his responses. And so the Pharisees reconvene, they huddle together and think, we've got to think up something to stump this guy. Well, as it turns out, one of them had been coming along and they grabbed him and uh, talked to him about a certain question to ask Jesus. And it is that question that we will look at in verse 28 of chapter 12, where it says, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he, that is Jesus, answered them well, asked him, What commandment is foremost of all? Now, in the midst of the dialogue here that's going on between Jesus and the Pharisees and Jesus and the Sadducees, the grammar here suggests that the scribe wasn't there at first, but he had come along as they were dialoguing. And and in that dialogue, he had listened to Jesus and was impressed with his response to the resurrection question, probably because Jesus agreed with him that there was a resurrection. But nonetheless, it appears that this guy is coming along. He's called a scribe, which wasn't just someone who copied the law. It was a law expert, a lawyer. And in Matthew's gospel, in this same incident, he uses a word that's a little different that seems to suggest this is a, the lawyer, the law expert. 
he was the theologian of the day, and they, they noticed him, hey, come over here. And they got his attention. The Pharisees didn't. They, they called together and come up with a question. They thought, this one was bound to get Jesus. This will bound to get him to say something that he shouldn't. Because in asking the question, they ask him, what is the greatest commandment of all? What's the most important command in the world, Jesus? What's the greatest instruction that we've been given? And they ask him this because the rabbis had come up with some 613 laws from the Pentateuch. And they had often argued about, well, which one's greater than the other? Which one has a greater judgment? What's a priority? So I'm sure they were sure that Jesus would trip up on this question. And it's an important question, not only in that day, but for us as well. Because since that time in the New Testament, we have a thousand plus more commands that we've been given. Just which one of those is the most important? What is the greatest priority for us? What is the greatest commandment? Well, the question is asked. The crowd is hushed. Yeah, I'd like to know that answer. So they quiet themselves down and they listen. All eyes are focused now on Jesus. And in his response, Jesus not only answers their question to them, but he gives an important answer for all of us to consider. Because ever since the world began, man has wondered, why am I here? What do I exist for? What is the purpose of life? Well, Jesus gives that answer in verse 29. He answered, the foremost is this. Heal Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. I should write a song with that. <laughs> the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And what Jesus does here is he simply quotes the, the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. The Shema is the word, a Hebrew word for to hear or to listen. It's the first word given. The Shema was given by Moses. As the people, after the 40 years of wandering in the desert, they were ready to enter the land. Moses then had proclaimed to this new generation the Ten Commandments. And right after that, he says, Now, hero Israel stops. He gets their attention. This, this is what you need to be focused on. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, it's interesting because this very passage, these guys should have known this. This is the fiber of Judaism. The Shema is something that when you are born, it is proclaimed over you. As a child, as you grow up, you memorize, you recite this. Even today, in Orthodox Jewish services, it is recited. And it is the rites that are, that are stated over you when you die as a Jew, the Shema. So it is essentially the first word spoken to you and the last words spoken to you. And they would even treasure these so much they would hang these things called phylacteries on their head. It would be tightly bound to their forehead and the verse was, was placed inside of it. They would have it attached to their arm. It was on the doorpost of their house. If you go into an Orthodox Jewish home, you'll see it up on in the inside, usually up above the door. It's this passage placed in a box. They recited it all the time, meditated on it all the time. In fact, this guy asking him the question, as a law expert, probably had one right on his head. He was staring at the answer in his face. I wonder if Jesus was even looking at it when he was answering the guy or pointing at it. Dude. <laughs> right? It should have been obvious. You would think that this guy would have gotten it. You would think that the Pharisees would have known the answer, but they still didn't get it. And it's the same today. Philosophers, artists, scientists... Everybody asks these questions. Why am I here? What is the purpose of life? 
what is the meaning of existence? And they still miss it. The answer is right in front of them. We have the Scriptures. God has clearly declared, this is the most important commandment. This is the reason you are here. This is the reason you exist. And that is simply to love God. To love God. It's the beginning and the end of why we are here. It's the most important thing. And it demands our full attention. And that is why this morning I want us to first take a look at this command to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and strength. And to do that, I want us to look at it with three different questions about this command. One is, what is love for God? Why should I love God? And where do I go from here? So let's look at these three questions. We'll look at the, the first question first. And that is, what does it mean to love God? I mean, of all the things that God picked, of all the things that he could have uh, focused attention on, of all the actions that he could have thought about, the greatest, most important one was to love him. That's what he wanted most of all. And if you look at this word love or or words that are attached to it, like kindness or compassion, mercy, there's over 1,200 occurrences in the scriptures. And these, these uh, passages, these words that are translated as love have uh, meanings all the way from the emotion and the, the feeling, the affection, all the way to this idea of service and sacrifice and obedience. And I think that's kind of the spectrum that we in this world move to in terms of when we think about love. There are some that see love as, as solely this idea of the feeling, the emotion, the infatuation. And there are others who solely define it or see it as a duty and sacrifice. Which is it? We tend to drift one way or the other. In fact, I see a lot of marriages like this, where it's usually focused on one end or the other. You have those marriages that are a lot of heat and romance and and affection, and then, you know, after time, it it kind of dies out, but there's no real sacrifice for one another. On the other side, this service and focus on on helping one or sacrificing, but, but no affection. It seems we as humans tend to veer one way or the other. Just what is God after? What does God mean when he says, I want you to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? Does he want those who are simply gushing with emotion or faithful to duty? Is he primarily concerned with action or feeling, desires or, or deeds, a movement of the heart or a movement of the hands? What is it that God wants? Well, the answer is all those things. He wants all of those things. Jesus said in verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus repeats the Shema and adds with your mind as well, just to emphasize and focus on the point. And many scholars, they spend a lot of time looking at these and trying to dissect and distinguish between when he said heart, See, he focused on the center of you, and, and soul is your emotion, and, and mind is your intellect, and strength is your activity. And yes, those words do have those nuances, but, but you know what? I think they're missing the point. Jesus used all of those different expressions to, to communicate this simple thing. I want all of you. I don't want just a part. I want every fabric of your being, every nook and cranny of you invested in loving me. From the core of your being... I want your love. He's using these terms, and, and these terms are actually interchangeable in Scripture to describe the whole you. Some passages will use heart, others soul, others mind, others understanding, conscience, the inner man. These are all expressions that describe you, 
describe the whole of you. And notice how he makes it even more emphatic. There's two little words that he adds to each of these uh, nouns, heart, mind, soul, and strength. What are those? You see them? With. When I ask a question and then pause, (laughs) that means you say something. Right? With all. He repeats it. He could have said, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But instead he says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Could Jesus not be any clearer that everything about us is to be devoted to him? Our emotions, our thoughts, our schedule, our brain, our time, our children, our allegiance, our affection, our effort, our body, our life. God wants everything. So you see, it's not just one end of the spectrum or the other. It's not just the feelings and the emotion, the affection. It's not just the service and the sacrifice. It's the whole thing that he wants. Think about how a partial love would would sound in a marriage vow. We had Greg Stone and Justine Caesar, now Stone, um, make those vows probably standing right about here yesterday. And uh, just think, how would Justine have responded if Greg had said this? I, Greg, take you, Justine, to be my wife, and I promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be a faithful and loving husband four days out of the week. I think Justine would have responded to that. Or what if he had said, uh, I'll be loving a faithful husband by just writing you love notes, but I, I'm not going to go out and get a job. Or uh, by just doing the chores in the house, but, but no dates. I'll be your loving and faithful husband by taking you on romantic dates, but you can do the job, keep house, and raise the kids. I'll give you a part of me, but not the whole thing. I don't think Justine would have been okay with that. A partial love is not really a genuine love at all. Do you think God's any different? That is, He's so desperate that He'll take whatever He can get? Oh, I got that one hour where they were singing to me and they were smiling. Oh, that's neat. Right? Do you, you think God would just take our leftovers? Just a piece of our life, a little bit of our time? You know, He doesn't bargain with souls. He doesn't make a contract like that. God will have all of you or He will have none of you. He won't settle for lifeless obedience and he won't settle for emotional expressions with no service rendered to him. God says, I want you to love me with all of you, with all your being, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the question is, well, what does that look like on a day to day basis in life? How how does a person who is like that? What do they what do they look like? Well, I, I try to come up with a little acronym here to maybe help you remember but loving god is a top priority t for trust o for obedience and p for passion trust obedience and passion that characterizes the kind of love that god desires and deserves from us and i wanted to look at briefly joshua 22 5 well we'll see a couple of these there joshua 22 5 if you could turn there for a moment this is toward the end of joshua's life um And these are some words that he spoke, and some of them should sound familiar to us. He says in Joshua 22, verse 5, Be careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. 
Now, Joshua gives here the Moses mantra. I mean, it's something that Moses said not only one time in Deuteronomy 6, 4, but all through Deuteronomy, he repeated this to love God with all your heart and with all your soul. And Joshua repeats that here. And then he gives other terms which are synonymous for what that love would look like. And one of the terms he uses is this idea of hold fast or cling to, clutch upon, uh, stick tightly to, cleave to. And it's this picture of, of like a child grabbing and holding on tight to their parent when they're afraid or need comfort or encouragement. I think of uh, Hezekiah, of any man that demonstrated this. In fact, he was described as one who trusted the Lord more than any other king in Israel's history. And there was terms used, uh, he was called one who clung to the Lord and did not depart from following him. And there was a situation in Hezekiah's life when the people of Assyria, the army of Assyria, had marched through and they had taken out the ten northern tribes of Israel. They had not only defeated them, but actually literally took them away from the land and destroyed, decimated what was once Israel. And then systematically the Assyrian army was marching through the various cities in Judah, taking out one after the next after the next, until they found themselves right at the threshold of Jerusalem. And the army there essentially taunted, the Israelites taunted Hezekiah and said, Hey, no God's been able to defeat us. We've marched through and destroyed every single army that we've encountered. You're next. Give up. There's no hope. Don't trust in Yahweh. He's not going to deliver you. And don't listen to that bum Hezekiah trying to tell you to depend on God. But Hezekiah told the people, Trust God. Trust Him. And he ran to the temple, laid out, the writings, the taunts, the blasphemy that was given by the Assyrian army and said, God, you've got to do something. We can't do anything. We are wholly dependent on you. Lord, deal with these people. Save us, deliver us, protect us. He trusted in God, even though his circumstances told him there was no hope. And that's what love for God looks like. It's a, it's a trust in him no matter what's going on in your life. It's a clinging to him first not going to someone else, not going to something else before the Lord. It's to listen to His Word above anything else. And in addition to trust, this idea of holding fast, notice too what Joshua said. He repeats the idea actually a few different times, few different ways here in verse 5. He said, "...to love the Lord your God and walk in all His ways, keep His commandments and serve Him." Not only is trust what characterizes love for God, but obedience. Deuteronomy 11 verse 1 says, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep His charge, His statutes, and His ordinances and His commandments. Right? The Apostle John in 1 John 5, 3. For this is love for God that we keep His commandments. And of course, Jesus' familiar words, If you love me, keep my commandments. Right? Don't miss the point here. Some people are under the impression that God could care less about what I do. That all I need to is to believe in Jesus, right? And accept that He died for my sins and uh, that He rose again. And that I believe He's the Son of God. I believe He was born from a virgin. That, that, uh, that all I need to do is, is believe in, in the cross. And that if I try to get into this holiness thing and pursue an obedience, that's really legalism. You know, and I, I do love God. He makes me feel good sometimes when I ponder and think about Him dying for me. That was neat. But listen, if Scripture says anything, it says this. If you love God, you'll obey Him. There's no way, there's no way that Jesus hung on a cross so that we could live life however we want to. 
2 Corinthians 5.15 explains that. It says, He died for all. Why? So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. 1 Peter 2.24, Tim read it a little bit earlier. He bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds we were healed. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus could not have been any clearer. If I love God, I will love what he loves and I'll hate what he hates. And what does God hate? He hates sin. And if we love him, we will hate sin. We will despise it in our own lives. Yes, we struggle with it, but we will do everything possible to flee it. And it's the contradiction of the highest order to say that I love God with all my being and then not do what he says. Luke 6, 46 says this. Jesus spoke these words, and I could just imagine hearing it in his voice. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? If you're not pursuing a godly life, then, then don't say that you love God. Because if there's anything that marks a Christian, it's obedience. An obedience produced by love. This kind of love is expressed in that way. And yes, we do fail. But the believer confesses that failure, that sin, and and gets up and pursues holiness again. And remember, God doesn't want obedience for the sake of obedience, right? It's not rule-keeping that He's interested in in and of itself. It is obedience out of love, a passionate love. That's the third thing, passion. Our love for God is not only in trusting in Him, obeying Him, but also being passionate for Him. Psalm 43, 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Or when David was wandering in the wilderness and thirsty, suffering from physical thirst, he, he thought about that and likened it to a spiritual thirst in Psalm 63, verse 1, where he said, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Isaiah 26, 7 through 9. Isaiah says this, The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. At night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. You hear what Isaiah was saying? He's talking about not only do the righteous obey and, and carry out God's commands and his statutes, but, but there's a desire and a, and a yearning to know who he is and what he has done. There's a longing for him. It's a passionate pursuit that he's describing here. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8 as he writes this letter to all believers. He says this, Though you have seen him, you love him. You have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. Did you catch what he said? In fact, I want just take a minute right now. Stop everything you're doing. If you're writing, put your pen down or phones or everything. Don't even look at, at me right now. I, I just want you to focus and listen to what Peter said one more time. And think about this. And I have a question for you. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice 
with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Brothers and sisters, I just have one question. Is Peter describing you? When you think about Jesus, is there a joy, inexpressible joy that stirs within you? Is there a longing to to see him? We don't see him now, but do you think about that? Is that something that excites you? Is that more exciting than the game happening later on this afternoon? Do you look more forward to it than, than a trip to Disneyland or a vacation? And I ask this because I see in Bible churches like ours a lack of passion for God. I see it in how we sing or lack thereof. I see it in in inconsistent attendance. I see it in people strolling in kind of late. Just as long as I make the sermon, that's okay. I see it in lack of prayer or lack of fervent prayer. Lack of spending time with the Lord. No real interest in God's word. No real interest in spending time with other believers. Do those things reflect an all-consuming love for God? Again, God, God wants all of you. He wants us to love Him. He wants us to trust in Him. He wants us to obey Him. And He wants us to have an affection for Him. In fact, uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote an amazing book called Religious Affections. And throughout the book, his main argument was this, that if I have no affection for God, I don't know God. And this is a man who's probably got the smartest brain of any who lived, especially in this country, but and ever. He's considered one of the most intelligent theologians. Here's a guy that could outdo all of us in, in his understanding of Hebrew and Greek and theology. And he says, if I don't love God with all my heart, if I don't have an affection for him, I don't know him. So again, I ask, is your life characterized by someone pursuing this kind of love? Have you given God just a part of you or all of you? You know, you can tell what a person loves by what they devote themselves to, right? It's not that hard. What do they think about a lot? What do they spend their time dwelling on? What excites them? What is it that they enjoy doing? What is it that they prioritize in pursuing in their life? What is it for you? Does coming to church and being able to hear God's word, to to sing his praises, to be with other believers, does that excite you Sunday morning? Do you find yourself talking to God a lot? Is he on your thoughts in those quiet moments? Maybe if you wake up in the middle of the night or in the morning, you're driving in your car. Do you find yourself naturally gravitate toward a conversation with the Lord? How about your time with the Lord? What's that like? How about your prayer to the Lord? How about talking to others about God? How much of your conversation involves him? What do your thoughts, your desires, your motives, what do you think about? What do they mostly center on? What gives you the most excitement in life? What do you get most excited about? You know, as I was meditating on this passage this week and just preparing to to preach, I I asked myself these very same questions. And I was ashamed at my answers when I really thought about it. I thought, I fall so far short of this kind of love. I mean, I I was asking God, how, how can I have this kind of love? God, how can you take me from where I am to the place where you want me to be? To have this all-consuming passion and affection and obedience and trust in you. How do I kindle this kind of affection for you, God? How, how can I love you with all my being? I can't even, I, I, to be honest, I can't even identify with that. Can you? What that would look like. 
we have Jesus' example, praise the Lord. But in thinking about that, I don't know if you're having the same questions I did. If not, then I'll just talk to myself for the rest of the service. But I want us to spend a little bit thinking about that. And I think one of the ways that can get us there to help kindle that affection, to help kindle that, that passionate desire to love God, is to think about why. Why should I love God? Because the why gets us to the how. If I understand why I should love God, it will motivate me to pursue that love for God. There's five reasons I want to give this morning. There's many others, but it's my hope that as we talk about these five reasons, that your heart will be stirred, that you will be motivated to have a love for God that's honoring to Him, that the love He desires and the love ultimately will give you the most satisfaction in life. And the first reason, Jesus laid it out right at the beginning when He said, He is the Lord our God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord is our God. We are to love God simply because He is God. He's the only true God. There are no others. He has no competition. He is the God who made you. You know, we've been spending a couple of months on on creation in Genesis. It's been wonderful. I've really enjoyed that series and just looking at all the different things that God has made, His creativity and His power. And what did He make on day six? Pause. What did he, who did he make? Adam and Eve, right? Us. He made the first man and the first woman. Without Adam and Eve, there's no you. If he didn't make them, then we don't exist. In Acts 17, 24, Paul, as he's introducing the one true God to the Greeks, he says, the God who made the world and all things in it. Without him, there ain't no people. There's no creation. And even more than that, it's not just the fact that he made Adam and Eve and so we came from him, but he's intimately involved with each one of us in creating you. Psalm 139, verse 13, David said this, You, God, formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. That gives me the picture of, you know, if you've ever seen a loom with a weaver, they're weaving intricately into a carpet or a piece of clothing or, or some fabric. God was doing that with you in your mother's womb. Without God, you aren't here. You don't exist without Him. He made you. And not only did He make you, but you don't exist here in that pew, living right now without God doing something to keep you alive. Acts 17, 25, Paul went, into, Paul went on to describe saying that God made, He's given to you life, breath, and all things. You know, it's the air that's coming into your lungs... And even your lungs expanding and contracting, that's all from God. The food that you ate this morning, being digested right now, that whole process is because God is bringing that about. He gives life. He gives to all life and breath and all things. The function of your heart, your liver, your kidneys, your brain, all of them function because God is causing them to do so. Your health, your clothing, your jobs. All a gift from Him. Your transportation, your housing, your very life itself is a gift from God. And there's a line in, in Isaac Watts' uh, hymn that I love. I sing the mighty power of God. One of my favorite lines in all, all the hymns is this. Well, all that borrows life from Thee is ever in Thy care. I think that's an exact and wonderful picture. We're borrowing life from God. We don't have it in and of ourselves. We can't exist apart from God. We're borrowing it. He has all life. Satan himself could not exist without God sustaining him. 
Think about that for a minute. There's nothing in creation that can exist, can remain, can sustain itself. Only God can do that. God is your creator. He is your sustainer. You owe him everything. Your very life is a gift from him. We should love God for that. It's Revelation 4.11. That's why those around the throne of God proclaim this. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. God deserves that kind of worship because he is the one who has made us. And without him we are nothing, literally nothing. Job 34 says this, If he should determine to do so, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would become nothing perish and man would return to dust does he not have every right to our complete love and devotion to him and not only that not only should we love him because he is our creator and sustainer but he's an awesome god he's not some distant being some distant powerful force out there that has no um no character, no attributes, no interaction with us. No, God is amazing. And the Bible talks about all of the amazing qualities that he has. His power is beyond comprehension. His patience and mercy are without equal. He is the most loving and compassionate person in all the universe. He knows everything. He sees everything. He's everywhere at once. He's more creative than all the artists in the world combined, right? All the art we see is an imitation of the original. He's perfectly holy. He's unlike anything in creation. No wonder David says in Psalm 8, 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic, how wonderful, how amazing, how awe-inspiring is your name in all the earth. You know, David in the Psalms, you know, thinking about this, many of the attributes we have about God are actually best explained in the Psalms. You thought about that? His omniscience, his omnipresence, his sovereignty. We get some of the clearest descriptions of what those mean in the Psalms. You know, David spent a lot of time thinking and pondering about God. And it, as he was doing that, as he was focusing attention on God, it, it drove him to one of my favorite passages in Scripture, Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why, David? So that I can behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. You know, David talked about God a lot. He thought about God a lot. And what did that do in David's life? It attracted him him to, to God. He was moved towards God so much so that all he wanted to do was just sit and stare at God. I'd be happy right now, Lord. Just take away everything else. Put me right in front of your temple and let me sit there and look at you. That's all he wanted. He was consumed with God. That was his natural response. No one had to convince David. David, Sabbath day. Come on, come on, let's go. You know, his mom wasn't there twisting his ears. Come on, it's time to go to church. Right? Time to go to the temple. No, David wanted to be there because God was inherently lovely and appealing to him. You know, no one has to tell me to love my wife. Nobody has to convince me that she's cute. She's always been cute and she still is cute no one has to argue me into being attracted to her or logically convince me that to persuade me of the benefits of loving her i love her because of who she is and that's how it is with god 
The God who made this world is intrinsically beautiful and amazing. And the more you get to know him, the more you'll be enraptured by him. If you struggle in loving God, then you aren't spending enough time looking at him. Now, third motivation to love God is, and this may sound simple, but it's profound, because he wants us to. You know, think about that. You know, what God commands is important to him, right? These are the things he wants us to do. What's the greatest command? What's the thing most important to God? The thing he pointed out above everything else. And in fact, everything else reflects this one thing that he wants. To love him. He wants you to love him. He desires that. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> to think about, as we just talked about, who this God is. How humbling it is for him who is enthroned above to even care or be concerned for us at all. And yet this same God says, the thing I want the most from you is a relationship with you. To love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That God would want anything from us is astounding. But that he would want our love and affection? Jesus expressed this in Luke thirteen thirty four when he said this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. You know, Jesus specifically chose quite a tender picture to describe his desire for the affection of people who killed and stoned prophets and did not want anything to do with them. And he says, oh, I just, just if your kids would come under me like little chicks being gathered under a chicken's wings. You know, that's a tender affection and desire. And this is a God who wants us to love him. And it's not that he needs our love. He doesn't need anything, but he desires it. He's a relational God who desires a relationship with us. And he wants our complete devotion to him. Jesus said in John 14, 22, He who has my commandments and keeps them is one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by me, by my Father, excuse me, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. In declaring love for God as the first commandment, Jesus is saying that is what he wants most, for you to love him. That God would want us to have an intimate relationship with Him. I, I would hope, brothers and sisters, that that would motivate you to love Him. To think God wants that. That's what He desires. A fourth motivation to love God is, is because He loves us. Because He loves us. A.W. Pink said this, How little real love there is for God. One chief reason for this is because our hearts are so little occupied with His wondrous love for His people. The better we are acquainted with his love, its character, fullness, blessedness, the more our hearts will be drawn out in love to him. You know, he's right. When you hear in scripture or someone say God loves you, what what comes to your mind? Is that a phrase that maybe we've heard so much we kind of lose the immensity of it? Maybe lose the, the awe and amazement we should feel when we hear it? I mean, ponder his love for a minute. God's love is eternal and it's infinite for you if you're his child. It's not some haphazard expression of emotion or a whimsical infatuation like a teenager may experience. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 presents this staggering statement. It says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 
In love, he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. You know, listen to this. God determined from eternity past to set his love upon those whom he'd save. And if you're his child, he's thought about you specifically from the beginning of time. Before even creating Adam and Eve, your name was in his mind. And being infinite, your name's always been in his mind. You individually, if you know the Lord, he has loved you, set his love upon you from eternity past. Meditate on that a minute. That kind of love is deep and long lasting. It's eternal and it won't change. God's love is eternal and it's infinite. Ponder that a minute. God's love is infinite. It's beyond comprehension. Among the most encouraging passages in scripture is this. You'll know when I read it. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you think about that? Do you believe that? Did you hear that list he gave? God's love is so infinite that nothing can separate it from you. He will never turn his back on you. If you're his child, he will never get rid of you. He will never turn away from you. You can't even stop him from loving you. That's an amazing thing to think about. There's no power. There's no argument. There's no entity. There's no circumstance that will make God reconsider his decision to love you. When you show up in heaven, he's not going to go, oh, it's you. I was kind of hoping. Far from it. What did the prodigal son father do when he saw him far on the road? What did he do? He ran to him and he grabbed him and he embraced him. He loved him deeply. That's you. God will embrace you. He will welcome you. His love is infinite. Can you let's just I pray that we would grasp just a little bit of that. It has lasted forever from eternity past all the way into eternity future, and it will never change. God loves you. And it's a deep love. It's not a whimsical one. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star. It reaches to the lowest hell. And the supreme demonstration of that love is seen in the fact that he gave himself up for us, right? Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, rebels, wicked, God-haters, he died for us. Herein lies the fifth motivation. God's desire that we love him with all our being was so important to God that he humbled himself by becoming a man and living among sinful men. It it mattered so much to Jesus that we be able to live out this command to love him. It mattered so much to him that he allowed his body to be carved up and beaten, nailed in shame to a piece of wood. And more than that, To suffer the wrath of God. Did you know he suffered greater than an eternal hell sitting on that cross? 
You know, eternal torment will not pay for your sin. Those who are in hell suffering forever, it's still not enough to pay for sin because God never stops. He never says, okay, you've suffered enough. There's only one thing in this universe that is able to pay for sin, and that is Christ's death on the cross. That means that he suffered greater than an eternal hell when God turned away from him. For you, for us, because of his great love. And he suffered that hell so that we might have the ability to love God as he deserves and desires. 2 Corinthians 5.14, I read this earlier, but listen again. Love of Christ, for the love of Christ controlled us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. God died so that you would die to your sin and live for him. There was no other way. There was no other way that we could love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. God had to die to make that happen. And just that that God would do that, that He would look upon us a a pitiful, sin-cursed race that would just as soon give more affection to a tree than to God. And yet, He died for us. Greater love has no man than this. Finish it for me. And the man lay down his life for his friends. Does not your soul stir when you think about these things? Is there not a, a spark of passion and, and desire to, to move toward him, to express love to him, to, to serve him with all your being? I know for some here this morning that that's not the case. You've heard the verses. You've heard what we've been talking about. And really, when you think about it, if you're honest with yourself, maybe there may be some of you here that there's no stirring in your soul. Maybe this is something you, you've, you've heard this many times before, but to hear the character of his God, of God, of his love, his, his death for you, his care for you, his desire that you love him, that stirs no excitement in the soul, no desire for affection. Perhaps your hearts are untouched. You look at your life and you say, I really don't trust God. I don't really pursue obedience to Him. I, I don't have a passion for Him. If that's you, if you have no affection for God, if His Word has not moved you, then, then He is not your God. And you're in grave danger. Psalm 145.20 says, The Lord keeps all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. He only gives two categories of people there, those who love God and those who don't. Paul expressed the same thing in 1 Corinthians when he said in chapter 8, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. And then later in chapter 16, if anyone does not love the Lord, he's accursed. These verses are telling us there's no third category. There's not the... Those people that are consumed in love for God and, and those the, the wicked people, the really evil people, and then I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle. I'm not radical like those folks, but I'm not as bad as these over here. God doesn't provide for any third option. It's either you love Him or you don't. It's either you have an affection and a passion, desire to obey Him and trust in Him, or you don't. To not give God your devotion or allegiance, to not seek to love Him with all your being is, is really to hate Him. It's to tell God that, that He's not important enough to love, that the sacrifice of Christ is unnecessary. 
If there's not an abiding love for God in your heart, then God is not in your heart. But you're still here. You're still alive. You have an opportunity to turn from that. God in His grace, who's sustaining you in this very moment, gives you the opportunity to change that. Those very same hands that will drop the wicked into hell have nail marks right here on them. Because it's not his desire for the wicked to perish, but that they would be saved. You have an opportunity this morning, if your heart is not stirred, if your soul is not stirred, to repent from that, to turn to him, to say, Lord, I have not loved you as you deserve. I've lived my own life. Forgive me for that. You died so that I would not have to suffer punishment for that, that I would not have to suffer separation from you for eternity. God is ready and willing to forgive. Don't take another moment without making things right with the Lord and placing your faith in His Son who died for you. He died for you. Commit your entire life to Him and beg Him to awaken your cold heart. You know, there may be others in this room who you have been stirred. You maybe are reflecting on things and you're, Lord, I, I'm just, I'm not there yet. Or it's been cold the last few weeks or a few months or, or maybe longer than that. Where, Lord, I, I know that and I appreciate all the things that you've done for me and, and these things that we're talking about. It, it, my heart is, is pricked and stirred, but I also feel this guilt. You know, maybe it might be that the motive of your affection is not based on who God is, but maybe on what he does for you. Gardner Spring insightfully wrote in Distinguishing Traits of Christian Character, he said this, There's a vast difference between a genuine affection for God and that selfish and unhallowed friendship to God which terminates on our own happiness as its supreme motive and end. If a man in his supposed love to God has no ultimate regard except to his own happiness, if he delights in God, not for what he is, but for what he is to him, in such a sentiment there is no moral virtue There's indeed a great love of self, but no true love to God. What what he's saying there simply is, what's the motive of your love? Do you you love and appreciate God for what he gives to you or for him himself? I'd remind you that, that God's love for you hasn't changed. If you're his child, but you find yourself there, God simply says, you know what? Confess that. Repent from that cold heart and pursue me. And to all of us, like I said, this has been a great opportunity for me just to reflect in my own life. And I hope this has been the same for you. And I think, I'm pretty sure, probably all of us in here would say, wow, I'm not anywhere near what God desires. But that's what I want. I want to have that same heart David had to just be able to to say, God, I want to just stare at you from now and forever. I'll just sit here, look at you, and that gives me contentment. Well, here's a few things I would suggest to you to consider to cultivate that deeper love for God. The first one is is obvious but necessary. Pray. Ask Him. When you wake up in the morning, let that be the first thing. Lord, today, the life and breath you give me, may you help me to express that in love for you. You know, if God's commanded us to love Him, then He will give us the means to carry out that command. Secondly, reflect on the five motivations that we talked about this morning. And as you do and ponder those things and really think about them, prayerfully meditate on them, they will stir you to move towards God. Make time for God. Absence does not make the heart grow fonder, but fouler. You know, time away from God only brings 
chill to the soul. doesn't warm it. Make that time consistent with him. Not only on your own, but I would encourage you with other believers. We kind of see this individualistic relationship with God, but that's far from what God desires. He wants us to be with one another. You know, love for God is, is contagious. And when I'm around somebody, they're singing their heart out or their desires for God. They speak highly of him. I'm moved toward that. See, I, I want that. I want to be like that guy. Be around other believers, not just here and now, Sunday morning. We've got so many things here in this church, small groups all throughout the week for men, uh, women's Bible studies, Sunday school classes on Sunday morning. We have Sunday night services, opportunity to come and learn more about God and be around his people. Hey, I got a novel one for you. It's against the law here in Southern California, but hey, just show up at somebody's house. Just knock on the door. Hey, how's it going? Want to have dinner? We had a family do that a, a month or two ago. Uh, they thought it was a night we were going to have a family fellowship, but they got the dates mixed up and they showed up at the door and they were kind of, hello. Uh, they said, hey, is it Oasis tonight? No, but, but come in. They had fried chicken, so we let him in. <laughs> but do that. Show up. Yeah, okay, your house may be dirty, but get over it. Fellowship's more important. I would encourage you to do that more. And not just my house, please. <laughs> we love you, but, you know, I just, we don't have room right now for... No, but seriously, think about that. If, if somebody you've been praying about, the Lord puts it on your mind, just show up. If you want to call them beforehand, that's fine. But you get my point, right? Pursue one another. Spend time with one another. Fourthly, remove every distraction that hinders devotion to God. John Piper said this, The weakness of our hunger for God is not because he is unsavory, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with other things. You know, we live in a world that's controlled by a being whose sole mission is to keep people from loving God. That's the one thing he's after. Saved or not, he would not have anybody pursue God. So not only will he bring temptations in our lives, but he'll also bring things that seem okay, distractions, things that aren't sinful in and of themselves, but they can consume and steal away time, priority from God. Satan would be just as happy if you spent your time, you know, doing something that wasn't sinful as is, as long, as long as you're not pursuing love for God. So the minute you step out of those doors, get into your car, you're now in Satan's domain. And he wouldn't love nothing more than to distract you. I want you to think about for a minute, maybe the top two distractions that are in your life. Maybe it is a sin that you're just not willing to give up. But maybe it's something that seems innocent, but it's taken a lot of your time. Maybe a hobby, another interest, another person. And you notice yourself spending less time with God as a result of that. Consider how you might deal with those distractions. And finally... Last but not least, look at God. Get a couple of books on his attributes. Uh, There are a number out there. A.W. Pink wrote a wonderful one. A.W. Tozer, uh, for you heavyweights, Stephen Charnock wrote a wonderful uh, book on the attributes of God. Jerry Bridges has a wonderful work, The Joy of Fearing God, I think it's called. There's many others. Great books. Take, get a couple of those books, and then each week, commit to an attribute of God. Read that attribute from each of those books, and then listen to a sermon on it, and write a couple paragraphs just in reflection, speaking to the Lord about it. And I guarantee you do that for a few months, 
You're going to be moved and drawn to God, just like David was. You're going to want to spend more time with Him. I would encourage you to do that. The story is told of when the Persian king Cyrus had captured a prince and his family. When they were brought before him, Cyrus asked the prince, What will you give me if I release you? And the prince replied, The half of my wealth. Well, Cyrus then asked, What if I release your children? The man responded, Everything I possess. Then the man, the king said, And if I release your wife, your majesty, I would give you myself. Cyrus was so moved by the man's responses, his devotion, that he freed all of them. He freed his whole family. And as they were on their way back to their home, uh, the, the prince had been thinking about what he had seen, the majesty of the palace and, and how ornate things were, and, and Cyrus himself even. And he said to his wife, wasn't Cyrus a, a handsome man? Wasn't that impressive in his throne room? But with a look of deep love for her husband, she replied, I didn't notice. I could only keep my eyes on you, the one who was willing to give himself up for me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, may that be the expression of our hearts, that we can only keep our eyes on you, the one who has given himself up for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, I I would just beg of you to to move in our hearts, all of us, Lord, in in such a way that our passion for you would, would grow, that our desire to please you and all we do would increase, that we would trust you more, that we would... Obey in all things, God, and when we fail, that we would immediately confess and, and pursue you once again. I pray, Lord, for any here who may not know you, that, that God, you would have moved in their hearts, that your spirit would bring conviction, that they would, Lord, want to know you. For it's only in loving you with all our being that we can ultimately find joy and satisfaction in this life. Help us to believe that, God. God, I pray that you would make Calvary Bible Church known as lovers of God. Lord, that, that people may criticize things about us, but, but not this. They would know and believe that we're devoted to you. We know that in that devotion, God, we will be honoring to you. And I just would pray, Lord, that you would make that happen in each of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.